Our scripture this morning is from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Jesus speaking, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness... How great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, you can open them or turn them on to Matthew chapter 6. That's where we're going to be this morning. It was really nice last week to sit in the back with my family and worship and hear from, as Ligon Duncan very capably brought the word, and this week you're stuck with me again. And we're going to be entering back into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If you, uh, if you remember, if you've been walking with us through this series, the Pharisees, who Jesus has both been speaking to and about They have a wrong view of God, and because they have a wrong view of God, they have a wrong view of man, and because they have a wrong view of man, they also have a very wrong understanding of money, money and possessions and and how they're supposed to use it, what they exist for. And most people don't realize that Jesus actually talks more about money in his four Gospels than any other topic. Jesus talks more about money than heaven and hell. One scholar uh, said that by his calculations in the four gospels Jesus spent 15% of what was recorded on money and possessions so clearly there's something to money you know and I don't think it's just that Jesus wants our money Jesus needs our money to do certain things Jesus knows that there's something about money that gets to our heart and that's what's going on in this passage this morning and I'll be honest Teaching on money has always felt very odd to me, very uncomfortable to me, especially in this kind of setting, because some portion of your giving supports me. You know, some portion of your giving comes to me, and it's not, it doesn't feel very comfortable to me to talk about something that in some way directly benefits me. You know, I don't want to be one of those pastors that devotes, you know, the end of the fourth quarter every year to talking about giving. You know, I don't want it, or, or maybe any time really that we're behind budget. Make sure we need to talk on giving more. That's not who I want to be. But clearly, there is something very, very important in Jesus' mind about money. So I would be remiss to not focus on it as a pastor. At my former church, Grace Bible Church, uh, we so didn't want to feed this idea that Jesus and the church. At the core of who they are, they just want your money. And we so didn't want to feed it that we would go out of our way to not teach on giving. And I would be the first to say that I think our people were hindered because of all the ways that we would try and get around sermons on giving. But that's one of the nice things about expository preaching. where We're just walking through the Bible and every time it comes up, we have to talk about it. And so this morning, we are talking about giving. I've lived in college towns um, 
since I graduated college, right? really since I left Orlando and went to Tallahassee, I have been in college towns. But in Oxford, Mississippi at Ole Miss, I saw something that I've, I've never seen before. And I don't know if it's just that everybody else does it now or if it's just a Mississippi thing because they have a lot of Texas money. But I saw people invest insane amounts of money in a dorm room. I mean, in, not, not like rent. I'm talking about decorations. Ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars in a weekend to decorate a dorm room. And I'm like, how do you, how do you even spend that much on, on a dorm room? And people would explain to me, well, you hire a professional decorator, you use high-end paint. Yeah, that's like 50% of it right there. You, you, you know, paint the room, you put up your curtains. Some of them would put hardwood floors in over the linoleum. And then you had the best bed, the best cushions, you know, the best rugs, your, the best flat screen TV professionally mounted on the wall, sound systems, game systems. And all of a sudden, you're spending ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. Now, Skylar Flowers wanted to be sure that I told you that was not his dorm room. His dorm room was a horrible-looking bed and a bunch of Papa John's boxes. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was thinking some of this they could take with them, you know, the TV, certainly. But you can't do anything with some hardwood floors. And, and as I came to understand, most of this stuff, it didn't match the next year's room and roommate. So it wouldn't go with them. And I even, one time, we were looking at... One of the families of the, the parents of one of these college freshmen put this kind of money into a dorm, knowing that the next year that entire dorm was going to be torn down. So, I, that's right. <laughs> so, I mean, I think your average person, we look at, at people like this and we think at best, this is probably not the best stewarding of your resources. At best, this probably isn't going to go really well for your child. But at worst... Really, this is a band-aid for all kinds of insecurities and longings because there is this, this belief that if I have more money and I can spend more money on me and my child, that I'll be happier. And I was reading Psychology Today this week, and there is an identifiable link between money and happiness. Money will make you happier if you give it away. There's no identifiable connection between having money and spending money on yourself and being happy. Lots of research has gone out on this. We can't find any connection on having money and happiness. But there's lots of research that says there is an identifiable connection between how much money you give away and how happy you are. And of course, the Bible is filled with these kinds of teachings. Not just our text today, Proverbs. All over the Bible, we hear giving is good. You'll be blessed. You'll be happier if you give. And so, (laughs) I mean, as a good rule of thumb... When modern science and the Bible agree on something, we would be crazy not to pay very close attention. So why is it that people who give are happier? What is it that Jesus is trying to to tell us about our hearts? And in this passage, we're going to see three things really clearly. We're going to see what it is that we should be doing with our possessions, with our finances. We're going to see why it's hard to do it. And then finally, we're going to see how we can. That's where we're going. So first, how are we supposed to handle our finances? Look at verses 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
So we are, what are we supposed to do? We are to lay up treasure in heaven and not on earth. And what does that mean? Because there are people out there who have tried to use passages like this to say money is evil, wealth is evil, to have a lot of money is fundamentally immoral. People have used this passage and others to justify various kinds of socialism. People have used this passage and others to justify their laziness-induced poverty. And I don't think any of that is what Jesus is wanting to do in this text. It's not what he's wanting to communicate because it's a good thing. We're commanded to provide for our families. It's a good thing if we can leave something to our children. It's a good thing if we can support ourselves in our later years. And there's this idea out there inside Christianity that money is the root of all evils. But that's not in the Bible. What does the Bible really say? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. That's what Jesus is wanting to get at here. It's not money itself, it's our hearts. There's something we can see about our hearts in the way that we use our finances and our possessions. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. That word lay up, it elicits, you know, imagery of coins piled high on a, on a desk or, or silos full of stockpiled grain. And in that day, there were real, as there are today, real dangers to our possessions. Uh, a wealthy person would have in that day had clothes of wool <clears throat> and you could have all kinds of wool and then you could add to your wool. <clears throat> you could add fine dyes. You can, people would actually have gold woven into their wool and moths would come in and do what moths do. They would nest in the wool clothes. They would lay eggs in the wool clothes and it would ruin the, the very expensive wool clothes. And then you see this, this rust section. There's actually a, a fair amount of debate on what exactly rust means. It could be uh, the, the rust that tears apart metals. It could really be speaking more about animals that would come in and eat the grain that they've stockpiled. But at the end of the day, it's clear what Jesus is saying. He's saying this is how all of our possessions will end up one day. Just like the wool that the moths eat, the metal that rusts, or the food that's eaten by animals. So I remember a few months ago, I, uh, I told you about my Nokia flip phone that I found in my kid from like the late 90s that I found in, in my kid's uh, the, the play, the bin of random play toys. Well, well, this week I found my 2005 Razor phone in the same bin. And I don't know if you remember a Razor phone, but this was like second only to the iPhone in a quantum leap in cell phone technology because it was truly flat. It was, and you could put, lots of heads are shaking. You, you know, you remember the Razor phone? It was flat. It had a color screen, a color flat screen, and they came in all kinds of colors. So really, Razor phones became more, as much a, a fashion item as it was a cell phone to talk with people on. And I remember when somebody gifted me my very first Razor phone, and I was more excited about it than I care to admit to you today. That thing had such value to me in 2005 and where is it now I don't think I could sell it in a garage sale for five dollars and my kids don't really play with it all that much it's it's pretty much worthless and Jesus is saying that's the way that all of our possessions are going to go everything that we have for the most part is at best going to be in somebody else's garage sale one day and if you happen to have one of those few rare Items that will genuinely continue to appreciate in value, 
you will lose even it. Someone can break into your home and steal it. Business partners can lie. Business deals can go bad. But for all of us at the end of the day, we're going to die and someone is going to walk into our house and literally take our most valued possessions. All of it is going to go. And, And at this point... Because we live in 21st century America, I have, I have to add one thing to what Jesus is saying. Because most of us, we don't feel like we've got coins piled high. You know, we, most of us don't have a Scrooge McDuck type vault that we can go and swim and, and all our money and enjoy it. And because of that, we're tempted to think that this passage, it really doesn't, I mean, yes, I need to watch out, but it doesn't really have a lot to say on my life. But it would be irresponsible of me not to point out that this passage was intended when Jesus said it to apply to every culture, every culture across space and time. And so you have people in tribes in Togo and in villages of Afghanistan who are working faithfully to make sure that they can apply this passage in their own lives. And because that's the case, we have to deeply feel that Jesus has at least as much and likely more to say to us as 21st century Americans. If you're in this room and you make more than $32,400 a year, you are in the top 1% of the world's wealth. So, so you got to think that Jesus would want to say something very particular if you are in the top 1% of the, world, the world's wealth. And it, I, it was really interesting to me this week. I was speaking with the head of the chemical engineering department at the University of Mississippi. And so he follows all the world's consumption, especially as it, as it pertains to chemicals. And he said, if the rest of the world were to consume the amount that the United States of America currently consumes, it would take eight planet Earths to support this world. So not only are we in the top 1% of this world, it is not physically possible for the rest of the world to catch up to us. And I don't want to be harsh. And, and I know particularly, you know, if you're in this room and you are in a financial pinch, I don't want to be harsh, but we can't believe the lie that would come in and say that Jesus has any less intended for us in this room than the rest of current humanity and certainly humanity past. Because when we think about not laying up treasures in heaven... You know, we think uh, maybe not buying that new car, maybe not buying that new toy. Maybe, you know, tonight I'm going to eat a nice meal at home instead of a nicer meal out. And I know enough Christians in other parts of the world who struggle to make this, this passage a reality in their hearts and they look at 21st century Americans and they laugh. And every generation... Every generation has what we call a blind spot, an area of our culture that we either don't or choose not to see. You know, my great-great-grandparents, they either didn't or chose not to see the horrors of slavery. You know, my great, not my, my grandparents, they either didn't or chose not to see how they were culpably naive to the overt racism that surrounded them. And almost everybody, I mean, conservatives, liberals, everybody would say, that our blind spot in our culture today is our accumulated wealth in light of the world's suffering. 
And again, I'm not saying that money is bad. And I'm not saying that I'm not deeply grateful to be born when and where I am. If, if my family lived anywhere outside of modern Western world, only two of the six of us would even be alive right now. If we lived any time before probably the early 1980s, only two of the six of us would be even be alive right now. So I'm not saying that it's bad to have money. Jesus isn't saying it's bad to have money. What he's saying is look at the opportunities that we have to do such good with it. And that good is what he's calling laying up treasures in heaven. Whatever it is that we sacrifice for, that's our treasure. Okay, dollars aren't really the issue here. Selfishness is the currency of this world and love is the currency of heaven. Dollars, they just simply help us to see which currency that we're using. But the question still remains, what exactly is this thing called treasure in heaven? Because there, there's this idea out there like it's this heavenly retirement plan. You know, we're, we're, we're stocking away for the, for the next life and, you know, we, you may get to heaven and you'll see one of your friends and like, what'd you get? And they're like, ah, oh, I just got Jesus. Oh, I'm so sorry. I got Jesus and all this treasure that I had been laying up in heaven. That's not at all what Jesus is saying because you remember the whole theme of the Sermon on the Mount and really the whole theme of Matthew are the two kingdoms. There are two different kingdoms. There are kingdom, there's the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And these two kingdoms have very different economies. They have very different values and ethics. And what Jesus is saying is if we are investing in this kingdom, in the kingdom of this world, that's laying up treasure in earth. But if we're investing in the kingdom that is to come, we're laying up treasure in heaven. Loving your children and grandchildren, you're laying up treasure in heaven. Loving your neighbor, which assumes that we know our neighbors, <laughs> is laying up treasure in heaven. Telling people about Jesus is laying up treasure in heaven. Investing in kingdom ethical issues like the pro-life movement and homelessness and discrimination. That is investing in the kingdom of heaven. The best way I can think of like, is, you know, is this a kingdom issue? Is this a worldly issue? Kingdom issues are the things that we're going to still care about on our deathbed. I had the opportunity this month to be with a man when he died. And, and unless you were just a, some sort of sociopath, you know, that, that, that can't help but affect us. We can't help but reorient how we think, at least for a minute. Because when that day com, comes for me, I'm not going to care about what kind of car I drove. I'm not going to care about how many books I wrote or, or what blog posts went viral. When that day comes, I'm going to be thinking of how often I would read in bed with my kids. I'm going to think of the times that I went out of my way to help somebody when it didn't benefit me at all. The things that we'll care about on our deathbed, those are the kingdom issues. A few chapters later in Matthew 13, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This makes absolutely no sense if the kingdom of heaven is not significantly, if not infinitely more valuable than everything that we have. All our possessions, all our money, everything. The currency of heaven is love, and love changes the way that we spend our money. That's what Jesus is talking about. So at this point, people want to ask, okay, well, how much should I give? 
If we're going to talk about finances, just give me an amount that I should give. And you know, a lot of people say 10%, 10% of what you give. I, I, just, that's, I don't see 10% as being this end-all number in the New Testament. I think the best category I, I can give and apply to my own family is simply does your giving affect your standard of living? So if, if you were to stop giving today and that opens you up to a bigger house and a newer car and better vacations, then I'm thinking you're probably laying up treasure in heaven. But if you were to stop giving today and that wouldn't affect anything, that would not open you to a whole nother style, a standard of living, you're probably laying up treasure in earth. And there are some really profound biblical examples of this going very poorly. People spending the currency of selfishness instead of love, investing in themselves. Certainly, certainly Aiken, we're going to be in Joshua over the course of the summer. We'll look more into it. But he was commanded not to take gold and silver from their enemy, from God, yet he did. He hid it and he lied to his people and he lied to God and he was stoned and burned for it. You have Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the church about what they were giving to the church and God struck them dead. And, and again, I don't think it's just that God, God wants your money. It's not, a, it's not a, a scare tactic for the church to get your money. What the Bible is communicating is that there are grave consequences to living our lives in the currency of selfishness instead of the currency of love. That's what God cares about. That's what he wants to draw us to. And so Jesus is looking, he's pointing at the way that people use our money, pointing at the way we use our money to communicate something about our hearts because that's what he wants. And at the end of the day, all of us in this room fail in some way. I know I do. All of us fail. But to get better, we have to be able to answer the question, why is it that we fail? Why is it so hard? Yeah, why, why is it that we can't just hear, lay up treasure in heaven? Like, okay, good, we're done. It's hard. Why is it hard? Second point. We don't naturally store up treasure in heaven because our eyes are set on the kingdom of this world. Look at verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And this admittedly sounds really confusing upon the first reading, but what's going on is very simple. Jesus is saying your eyes are the way that, that light comes into your body. You don't produce light, but your eye is the vehicle by which light is introduced into your body. Your eyes are the reasons that you can, you can see and guide your steps. Your eyes illumine the body. And so Jesus is obviously spiritualizing what's going on here. I mean, you could be, it could be noon in the summer in the Florida sun, but if your eyes aren't working, you can't see the light. Even though it's shining, you can't see. It's not doing you any good. You don't know where to go. And so Jesus is spiritualizing this by asking us, what ultimately are our eyes on? If our eyes are on the glory of God and his kingdom, then that's going to illumine our hearts. It's going to make us want to lay up treasures in heaven. But if our eyes are on ourselves and our glory, on our own selfishness, then we're going to be dark because the light is not getting in. And we're going to want to lay up treasure in this earth. 
And I think one of the hard things about living in the culture we live in is there's always somebody who has more. There's always somebody who's richer, always somebody who's wealthier, always somebody with bigger house and fancier vacations. And it's easy to think that this doesn't apply to me. And the reason that's the case, and, and I think it's, it's apt that Jesus is doing this in the realm of greed. Because this blindness, it blinds us from even seeing that we're greedy. Because every other sin, you know, I mean, you know when you're committing it. You know when you're lying. You know when you're stealing. You know when you're cheating on your spouse. But there's something about greed that we're blind to. We don't even realize that we're committing a sin. We don't even realize that we're greedy. I remember Tim Keller saying, he was a pastor in New York City, he said that he had people confess all kinds of sin to him over the course of his ministry. But do you know what no one ever came to him and confessed? Greed. I mean, New York City. This is like the, the capital of the universe for greed. And no one ever came to him to confess it because they didn't see it. We're blind to it. It's a very unique kind of sin. And because we're blind to it, it causes us to make bad decisions. We choose our jobs wrongly. If all we're looking for is money, we're not going to consider how is this going to affect our family. We're not going to consider how, is, how am I going to enjoy this? Does, this. does this fit my, my skill sets and the ways that I'm wired? This can cause us to choose bad spouses. You'd be wise not to amen this, anyone. But we've all seen a person choose a spouse not, not because of true love, not because of compatibility, and certainly not because of spiritual qualifications, but for what? For either the money or promise of money. Because they think that in money, there's going to be security. I read a story this week of a man named Dr. Addison Leach. He was the second husband of Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot is like my wife's favorite person to read and listen to. She, she passed away a couple years ago. But uh, she, she had three husbands in her lifetime. The first was Jim Elliot, the, the most famous. He was a missionary in South America and died by the spears of the people he was trying to reach. And so her second husband, Dr. Leach, was a professor. And he had, uh, he had two female students become Christians. And when they became Christians, they decided they wanted to be missionaries. And so they went and told their parents that they wanted to be missionaries. And their parents were slightly horrified, but they were Christian enough to know that we've got to be for the idea of missions. And they said, all right, we're okay with you being a missionary, but first you need to get some security. First, you're going to have to get a master's degree. All right, then then let's make sure you get a couple years on the job so you have a, a career to come back to and maybe get some money in the bank account. You just need a little bit of security before you go into the mission field. So they... They went then to Dr. Leach and said, this is what our parents have said. What do you think about this? And he said, I want you to go back to your parents and tell them that we live on a spinning ball of rock in the universe called Earth. And we don't know that it's not going to hit something at any moment. And even if it doesn't, for all of us, a trap door is going to open. We are going to die and a trap door is going to open. And underneath that trap door, there are either going to be everlasting arms or nothing at all. So what security are you going to get from a master's degree? That's the way that greed blinds us. The darkness in our eyes, it blinds us from greed. 
We look to all the objects of our greed, thinking they're going to provide security and happiness. And in that moment, money becomes our master. Money becomes our master because it has power over us. And that power, it can manifest itself in in many different ways. You know, I've seen money exercise its power over somebody by alluring them. You know, we can see nice jobs and nice houses and nice cars and nice vacations and just deeply, deeply, deeply yearn to have that in our life. And if we can't have it, we want to be close to the people who do. But it can do the exact opposite too. It can make us hate money and hate people with money. I had a student years ago who did not come from money at all. And he told me one day, I hate money. I hate the people who have money. I hate people who live in nice houses. I hate people who, live, who drive nice cars. And in that money, in that moment, money was exercising its power over him because money was his master. And we see this playing out in politics on both sides of the aisle. You see some Democrats who want to redistribute wealth because money is their master. And you see some Republicans doing whatever they can to maintain wealth because money is their master. This kind of sin, it goes on both sides of the aisle. It transcends socioeconomic class and ethnicity. It affects us all. So, what are some signs that money might be our master? This is by no means exhaustive, but do you look down on people who have less than you? Do you feel like you have more value than they do? Do poor people make you angry? Does your giving quantifiably affect your standard of living? If the answer is no, money may have power over you. I once knew a man, I know a man, and he he told me, and I appreciate his honesty, he said, every time I write that check to that church, it just pains me to watch that money go out. And even in this man, even in his obedience to do what he knows he's supposed to do, Money is his master. Money has power over him because it, he hates it in his heart. So if that's how all of us are wired, all right, all of us, to be hard to this command, to lay up treasure in heaven, to lay up treasure in the kingdom that is coming, how can we do it? This is my last point. We can do it by choosing the right master. Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We have a master. We will be mastered by somebody. Here's the thing. We get to choose what that master is, though. Do we want to be mastered by God, or do we want to be mastered by money? And in these kinds of circles, often we can fool ourselves into thinking that we can have a little bit of both. We can have just enough God to get into heaven and just enough money to make us happy and have security. But what Jesus is saying is that can't continue. That, that will have a psychological effect on us, this, this duality of living that will cause you to hate one of them. If, if you try to have both, you will hate one of them eventually. And the one that you hate, it reveals the one that you really love. And I think that there's some revelation that spirit-filled Christians come to. 
that breaks us out of this battle, that firmly establishes that God is who we want to serve. And it's the realization that money is a God who will never love us back. Never love us back. One pastor, one pastor says, the Bible says that every treasure but Jesus is going to ask you to die to purchase it. But only the treasure of Jesus Christ is going to die to purchase you. Every other treasure that we set as our supreme value, it is going to say, die for me. But only Jesus as a treasure is going to say, I've died for you. We were Jesus's treasure and he died so that he could become our treasure. That's what separates Christianity from every other worldview on this earth. And that's where Jesus is wanting to go in this passage. So who are we going to serve? Are we going to serve the master that will not love us back, that will give in to moths and rust and, and thieves? Or are we going to follow the master that will always love us no matter what for the rest of eternity? That's our decision. And unlike any other worldview, Jesus isn't commanding our actions. He isn't even commanding our money. He's commanding our hearts. And that's why verse 21 says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And I've heard some well-meaning Christians say things like, well, just go ahead and start giving and your heart will follow. You give and then your heart changes. And, and while maybe God in his grace has done that in some people, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that where our money goes, it reveals our hearts. It reveals where our treasure is. And, and this isn't a New Testament idea either. You can go all the way back to Exodus when Moses was raising supplies to, to establish the tabernacle. Look in Exodus 35. Look who it is that was giving. And they came, everyone who? Whose heart stirred in him. And everyone who? Whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. Where our hearts are, our treasures are also. That's what Jesus is wanting to communicate to us. I was thinking this week, it's probably nine years ago when my oldest Turner was a toddler. He was on the floor just kind of toddling, I don't know. And I got down close to him, just wanted to play with him, and he looked at me, and there was this toy off to the right, and he just grabbed it, just like that. And I remember thinking, Some, something's very off here. <laughs> and what was off was that I wanted to be his treasure. I wanted him to be more excited about me than that toy that he thought maybe I'd take away from him. And so I got down, and I said, Turner, give me that toy. And he, <laughs> I said, Turner, give me the toy. And with tears, Streaming down his cheeks, he gave me that toy. And I grabbed him and I hugged him and I loved him and I played with him because I wanted to be his treasure. And then when we were done, I gave him that stupid toy back. I don't care about the toy, I care about his heart. And that's what Jesus is wanting to communicate to us in the way that we use our money. He wants our hearts. So many have mischaracterized Christianity as a religion that's after your money. And I will be the first to admit there have been churches and pastors and priests who probably really did, not, did want nothing more than your money. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus wants your hearts. And he in this passage is asking us, 
all of us to let go of the God who will never love us and will let us down and hold on to the God who will never stop loving us and never let us down. That's what this passage is about. Would you pray with me? God, we are so thankful that you give us reassurance like this that you don't want to lord over us in guilt. You just want us. You want our hearts and you will faithfully prune and cut where you need to so that you can have our hearts and we know when when our hearts, when you have our hearts and when our greatest joy, our supreme value is you, that's where we're happiest. That's where we're most secure. And we come to you a full room of sinners who daily struggle with this. And we pray that we would see your exorbitant grace to us in all the ways that we fail. And we pray that by your spirit, you would work in us in a way that would make us want to live lives singularly focused on laying up treasure in heaven, investing not in the kingdom that will burn away, but in the kingdom that is coming. We thank you for calling us into that kingdom and we pray for the grace to live in that kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.